Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Historically Thinking. With me is Mark Salisbury, who has been on the podcast uh, four or five times. I have to check and see. This might be your fifth appearance on Historically Thinking. I was previously a vice president at Augustana College for Institutional Research, which is where I ran into him. I think that was literally. And now he is the president, CEO, founder, and impresario of Tuition Fit. Um just for the just for this free advertising, what is tuition fit and what do you do, Mark? Tuition fit is a way to pull together the millions of different prices that college students are asked to pay by colleges all over the country. And what traditionally has been a problem is nobody knew what anybody else's prices were. So you never could figure out if you were getting a good price, a bad price, somewhere in between. You could never compare prices. You never could find the school that was the best financial fit. And so we just created a way for the public to share the data to a central location. It's secure. We protect people's anonymity. And then you can see all the prices that other students like you are getting from schools all over the country. And sort of like a Kelly Blue Book for college pricing, Hmm. just, you know, make it transparent. Yeah. So you're solving the information problem, as the economists would say. Yes. I am a budding rogue economist, I suppose. Yeah, and, uh, you are. Budding uh, Austrian economist. I think it's, that's, that's their big thing is the information problem. And also, this is now generally, as I understand it, consensus that uh, by everybody is that prices are information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we weren't getting information before. We had prices, but curiously enough, there are prices that were informationless. Yes. We had prices that... 40 years ago, you could bet that the sticker price was probably what you were going to pay. So that was an easy one. 40 years later, we got price uh, becomes the Chivas Regal thing where it's just about signaling quality, which means you can just use the price to signal quality and then you can use discounting for whatever you want to do. So the actual prices become essentially about half of what the sticker price is. And that means the spread of actual prices is all over the place. And informationless is exactly the right term for it. So I wanted to talk to you about a bunch of things. Uh, I was prompted because I had uh, been reading uh, Jonathan Zimmerman's uh, book, excellent book, The Amateur Hour, which uh, uh, listeners will have heard that podcast a couple weeks before this drops or a week or two before this drops. So I wanted to talk to you and we'll, we'll probably conclude our conversation by talking about assessing teaching uh, in college, because that's how we met. Um, but uh, before that, there was a bunch of stuff. As always, I read Inside Higher Ed or I see Chronicle. And I, I said, man, I really would like to talk to Mark about that. So we're going to go through some of that stuff. And I was wondering, um, December 1st of 2020, it's a very strange year. This is sort of like saying um, after a Category 5 hurricane hits Florida, is is Disney World okay? <laughs> but um, is what's the effect on the on the class of well, it'd be twenty twenty five 
what's going on for people applying to college at this point? Where 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 is the admissions process at this time of year anyway? And has a COVID or COVID tide thrown any wrinkle into that? Yeah, that's a great question, and and lots of people are trying to get their hands on that, um, get their head around it. I should say the um, the couple about a month ago the common application, which is a big nonprofit that hundreds of colleges use um, so that a student can fill out one application and then just hit send, 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 send as many times as you want to send it. What a, what a great innovation that was. I wish we had had that back in the, uh, anyway. Well, you know what? We did. But it was we did. paper form and um, there's not many, that, that many colleges used it. It wasn't until a couple, eh, the last 15 years that it really took off. Um, help, thank, thank, thank you, technology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as a function of that, colleges have made a lot more money on applications because kids send more of them because it's just they easy do. to hit send. Yeah. Um, college applications about a month ago, Common App said that they were down about 9%. Hmm. So then, then, and they said that that 9% was disproportionately amongst lower income students. Um, that dovetails with what we saw um, last spring in that FAFSA applications, the form that students have to fill out to see if they qualify for Pell Grants and other low-income need-based grants, um, that FAFSA applications were down about 14%. And then what we've seen in enrollment this fall is that Students that were already in college, by and large, came back, um, but freshmen didn't show up quite as much. And the big drop was in students entering college uh, at community colleges, and that were typically more on the low income side. So uh, community colleges, some community colleges had enrollments dip um, 20, 30% among first year students. Um, so that's kind of where higher education institutions are right now, where the application process is for next year. Um, it seems like it's a little bit behind. And where students would be right now is if you've applied early or tried to get into a really selective place, your deadline for application was probably December 1st, if not a little bit earlier. So that's, you've already submitted that. The next big deadline is January 1st. A lot of institutions have that as their deadline. Um, so there's going to be the usual mad scramble over Christmas break and over the month of December. Uh, but we'll see. I think we're going to end up with, you know, a lag in the number of applications submitted. And Unfortunately, that lag isn't in an overall reduction in the number of applications the students send out, but it's going to be a reduction amongst lower income students who well, they're not sure what's what's going to happen. And so they're just not submitting an application at all. And uh, of course, that presents a pretty substantial problem uh, in terms of what are we trying to do with education in the first place? And uh trying to uh, make it a, 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 a tool for social mobility. It's hard to do that if kids don't apply. Have you looked at the historical data on emissions during times of recession? I mean, what was it like in two, I mean, actually you were there for that. 
Uh, what was it like in 2008? Or I'm, I'm thinking all back to like 93, 91, right. early, early 90s, where the I always thought the the rule of thumb, or even after 2000, even after 9-11, when there was a dip in the economy, the rule of thumb was is that this is when people often say, you know, it doesn't look like a good time to find a job. I'm going to go get some more skills or I'll go get it. I'm going to go work on a degree. Yeah. Well, so uh, enrollment in graduate programs is up. Mm, okay. So grad school enrollment is up from where that's all. Here. That's all we need. Yeah, go on. Right, mm. Exactly. Um, there's, there, I mean, there's not enough, there's not enough baristas. So we need more grad students. Uh, easy. Easy. Careful. Easy. <laughs> um, but the, the grad school is up, so that would um, com- that would sort of fit with that traditional trend. And the traditional trend has been that in times of economic sputtering, whatever term you want to use, um, then enrollment in higher education goes up. The, the type of enrollment, though, doesn't necessarily uh, go across all types of, you know, traditional students, non-traditional students, adults grad school, undergrad, um, that doesn't necessarily always play out exactly the same way. But um, I think that we're in a little bit different place now in that um, combined with an economic downturn, which I blame your people in in the academic world for coming up with words like downturn. Mm -hmm. um, Combined with that, is a very different sense about whether college is worth it or not. Yeah. Um, because I don't think that's been there before. Um, in 2008, people were still borrowing like crazy. There hadn't been enough realization that that borrowing trend was not going to work out like it really didn't work out um, in terms of so many students ending up borrowing way more than they should have and then in tremendous debt and couldn't get out from under it. Um, so those that narrative has now become a part of the national milieu. And so there's this big question about is college worth it and what college kind of college is worth it. And so there's a, there's a different tone this time around and it's pretty worrying. Well, it's really weird because uh, you would think that uh, the opposite conclusion would be drawn that, more people would be going to community college and fewer would be going to grad school. But, uh, you know, uh, we'll leave that for another time. Right. right. Um, so a couple of items in, inside higher ed. Uh, I, I th- something I, I chuckled over, I thought you would enjoy, and you did. Um, an article on you experience yes. is a private venture to have a luxury campus where people will go to study online. Mm-hmm. It's going to be on a Texas Lake resort or maybe in Hawaii. It's not clear. There's a little, a little confusing there. Uh, natural, the natural reactions. Uh, some people are saying that it, this is an abomination. Others, of course, the founders say it's going to be like a utopia. My thought was, don't these people watch movies? <laughs> don't they know what's going to happen? On the bottom of that Texas Lake, there's an ancient evil which will now rise and seek and devour. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> if you were if 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 you were feeling like there wasn't quite enough good reality television on, exactly. Um, here's your shot, right? Um, 
these folks tried this last year and they had a resort in Hawaii, a hotel in Hawaii and a oh, okay, hotel yeah. in Arkansas set up. And as soon as the news broke, they were going to do this. Folks in Hawaii went bananas and said, no, you're not. And the folks in Arkansas were sort of like, huh? I'm not so <laughs> sure about this. And uh, you experienced had to shut down their plan. So now they're going to try it again. Um they found a location in Texas, which means the two places they went to before didn't give them a second shot. Um, it It's one of these things that if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, this idea is not such a bad idea. You got a bunch of folks that are um, taking classes online, completely online. Do you want to do it from your own house or would you rather do it in a some sort of community? Now, the next part of that question is, is what kind of community um, right. is it going to be club med or is it going to be some sort of community that's sort of built on the idea of how do you uh, really learn and grow in a collaborative setting? Well, I mean, that's that's a lot to ask for right there. The second one. So yeah. I'll just take the club med. And I was surprised their, their, their price for club med is 10 K. I mean, I've seen a lot worse for a semester. Uh, oh, per semester. Good point. Yeah, yeah. That's I think it was point. 10K yeah. just for the semester. So that's okay. double what normally what room would normally be at a at a typical you know Joe average university. Yeah. Um, the people who complain so you still gotta pay for the rest of your meals. Yeah, yeah. People complain about the theme park uh, aspect of this, and I say, haven't those people seen High Point University? I mean, uh, this is this is where this is kind of the logical point to which we've been heading. I think there's a lot of campuses that would benefit from a monorail. I really do. <laughs> right. I really do. Uh, nothing, like a, nothing like a monorail. <laughs> no, there really isn't. And there are a lot of campuses that already have the sort of haunted house. I mean, yeah, they, they do. do. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be, yeah. Um, worried about the OSHA regulations on that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. amusement park haunted houses are. You know, bad things have happened there, and I don't mean because of the haunted house, but all right. Um, another study also inside higher ed, did students in college housing learn better? And I noted with great interest that um, I don't understand the editorial decision, decision here, but it was a survey conducted by Amer- American Campus Communities, mm-hmm. which turns out to be a leading developer of college housing. Mm-hmm. Yet this was a news story. Not surprisingly, American campus communities did discover that students learn better when they're in college housing. Um, could you please explain the numbers on this to me? Because uh, you, you know about those things. Yeah. Well, so as best I can tell, because when you go and look at the actual report that was linked in the story, um, that thing doesn't tell you very much. <laughs> no, uh, and, and, and I think that was sort of the nature of the beast, right? So this is a organization that um, is a, one of these public-private partnerships that lots and lots of universities have signed on to. Somebody else come in and build some student housing for us, either build it on campus or build it right across the street from campus, and um, we'll figure out a way for both everybody to make some money on this and students have a place to live. Um, all of these places, from what I could tell, uh, they have weight rooms, they have game rooms, they have iPad charging centers, they have computer labs, they've got, these are nice apartments with all kinds of amenities. 
sort of oh, refers yeah. to the previous item that we discussed, mm-hmm. which is yeah. Yeah, they've all they've all got a pool. I mean, um, so this is a pretty nice setup, and they said that they got responses from about forty six percent, which ultimately produced something like forty two thousand responses. Which means that this is a massive company if they've got a hundred thousand students in higher education on on campus housing. Um, but you know the kinds of questions that they asked, it was really a satisfaction survey, and they do these every year as an organization because smart organization wants to know how students like where they live. Um, and I, it didn't surprise me that the students who are living, the students who are paying to live in these facilities are saying that, yeah, they, they missed the community aspect, but they're still able to learn, but it's hard to be motivated to do everything online. Um, yeah. But, okay. Well, that, that's enough of that. Yeah. Um, I know it, it, it was sort of one thing inside higher ed has done recently is in the last year is it's almost every couple of days, there's a story about another survey. Uh, yeah. And in part, that's because there's lots of folks trying to figure out what the heck's going on this year. And so everybody's got a survey. Yeah. Um, but just it's a sir, it, it's, an, it's good. It's a really the thing is, though, it's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to have an answer to it sometime. Um, but uh, this is not it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's talk about something else related to this one. And the last couple, several items is that. Um, Everyone's been complaining to me, either uh, on or off mic, um, and in Inside Higher Ed, and in uh, Chronicle, about online teaching. Okay, there are probably a few weirdos um, who really have enjoyed it, Mm -hmm. Um, but for most people, having a very unfulfilling time. Now, to be candid, I know that this was – a lot of people were expecting to have a bad time. And so they, some of them are finding what they expected to find, which is often the way things are. Mm-hmm. But I have been, you know, I'm, this is another intriguing question. Um, were there any good studies of online education prior to COVID? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not sure having seen a bunch of them in the last couple months. Um, I'm not sure I trust these. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, there's been a ton of study on um, the efficacy of online learning. Um, You know, there's not a lot that happens before 1999, 2000, Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. And then the, and the early studies, um, it's really like, um, uh, for lack of a better term, correspondence course, but using a computer and sending you the DVDs of a, a lecture but broadcasting it over the internet. Um, so it was, it's not anything close to what is available in online learning now. Um, but it is pretty w- important to, to answer your question. One, there's been, there has been a lot of research on online learning. Does it, is it more effective? Is it less effective? Um, and the answer is sort of what you'd expect to find, which is, on balance, it's about the same. It's a bunch of other variables that make the difference for different types of students in different kinds of situations in different subjects. That said, the big move to online everything back in the spring 
boy, if there was a better way to like get traditional students to hate quote unquote online learning, that was it. Cause you take, you know, tens of thousands of faculty across the country who've never taught a class class online, hate the whole concept of online, have ranted about it in faculty meetings or at the uh, department Christmas party. Um, (laughs) And then tell them in a span of a week, they've got to put the rest of their classes in an online whatever. And then have a choice. Well, yeah, then it was going to (laughs) suck. That's exactly what happened for a lot of students. It was everything from the professor just sent me uh, their notes by email (laughs) and with some reading assignments and then said, write a paper. Uh, Other faculty were, you know, doing their lectures on Zoom in their pajamas from their kitchen table. Mm -hmm. Um, Inspiring. Nobody wants to see that. No. Um, So, yeah, there was a bunch of really awful learning um, or edumacation (laughs) delivered on over the Internet for a couple months back in the spring. Yeah. And sure enough a bunch of young 18 to 20 year olds, 22 year olds said, this is awful. And on balance, they were right. Sorry, it was awful. But that was a function of who you asked to do it and how much time you gave them to switch over and how little support you gave them to figure out how to do it. I don't know that that's anybody's fault. That's just the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. Um, So over the summer, some schools really invested in a better online platform, really did a lot of training, really helped their professors learn how to teach in this online environment. Other schools invested millions in plexiglass Mm -hmm. and then told everybody in August that they had to figure out how to do it online. (laughs) So um, it's still all over the place, but folks are trying to do some studies now and I don't even know how good those studies will be in terms of, are they generalizable to anything in a normal time? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but the delivery method of a class, whether it's real online learning, which has all kinds of modularized individualized AI in the background to really make it customized to the individual learner, or whether it's just, I'm having class in my Zoom room. Everybody show up. Those are two entirely different ways of learning and delivering a class. And unfortunately, right now, we sort of all lump it together in online classes just because, you know, we're all just trying to figure out a way to get through this crazy mess. Yeah. Well, well, this kind of also connects to what I really want to talk about, which was um, Jonathan Zimmerman's uh, book, The Amateur Hour, which you have not yet read. I have uh, not but, yet read, but I have listened to your podcast. Listen to the podcast. Um, I am dying to read this book. I can tell you it's right so now. Good. It's good. It's, it's cool, interesting, like big time plug to that podcast episode for anybody who hasn't listened to it yet. I Yeah, well, I, I thought of you often as I read this, especially because – 
uh, we came to the subject of evaluating professors, which um, those who've listened, but I mean, we barely had time. We could have had an entire conversation just about the history of professorial teaching evaluations. Oh, super interesting. Yep. How professors sort of ditched, uh, uh, basically kept uh, administrations from implementing them around 1910. <laughs> mm-hmm. How, how, uh, very shortly after the AAUP, American Association of University Professors, was formed, um, one of the sort of arguments for academic freedom was stay the hell out of my classroom and don't monitor my teaching, which was a little shocking. Um, yep. I thought I was cynical, but I wasn't cynical enough, um, apparently. Um, and how students quickly came up with at Harvard and then other places came up with course guides um, to assess professors, which soon became an assessment of who was the easy professor and who graded easiest. Right. Um, Five years before rateyourprofessor.com. Exactly. It was all being done, you know, in in mimeographs or whatever they had in the 1920s. And this was, these were sometimes, these led to, there were student protests in the 20s against bad professorial teaching. And about the failure to evaluate bad professors. It's just an absolutely fascinating history. Now, I think about this because uh, at certain points, um, Jonathan was sort of giving the indication, he was certainly quoting lots of people, you know, it's really just impossible. This is where, and you know this, where this ends up. Mm-hmm. Teaching is just too important and precious to really evaluate. It's like love. Who wants to measure love? Can you measure love? Well, no, you I can't. Do. I want to measure love. <laughs> yeah, but you're experiences. You, you were a vice president for institutional research. You want to measure everything. Difference, like, you know. <laughs> so, can you talk Art about? Song, by the way, what's that? Isn't that a foreigner song? I want to measure love. Hey, right, you got me there, man. Show me. Something like that. It is, it's true. No, not I, th- I think that, that's. I think it, the lyrics might be a little different, but yeah. Um, but you know, I I read a lot of badly crafted teacher evaluations, uh, which we're always kind of demeaningly told not to collect ourselves, but have someone else do it, as if we're going to you know slip um, fake ones in there <laughs> or like edit them. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could happen, but it's you know kind of always feels a little makes you feel a little dirty and untrusted. Um, but, uh, when I got to Augustana, I was shocked because your evaluations were completely different. So could you talk a little bit about just, uh, for 20, for 20 minutes about how you, cons- uh, thought about evaluating, uh, teaching and how you went and how you did it? Um, well, when I got to Augustana, they had a different set of evaluations than when you got there. I, um, I, and, I suspected as much. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was writing surveys by committee by faculty committee when the surveys are supposed to you know uh measure or assess the quality of yourself is probably a bad way to do it because of course you don't want to ask a question that's going to get bad information mm-hmm. not because you're bad people just because you're human right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but there's there's a, a couple of different ways to do uh, course evaluations and course assessments. And, you know, the that's actually where all the interesting stuff is. Unfortunately, when you see people writing about course evaluations or evaluating professors, um, and frankly, we got to parse the difference right there, right? The difference yeah. between assessing a course 
and evaluating the professor, well, that's part of the problem, right? Um, if you're evaluating the professor, if that's what the meth, the if that's what the survey instrument's supposed to do, well, then we might as well just throw a huge party for everybody's latent bias to just show up in a fancy hat because that's what's going to happen, right? <laughs> um, and it's a very different thing if you're assessing satisfaction or if you're assessing learning. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we needed to do at the institution we were both at was to really get to a place where we were really assessing learning. Um, now, what we used was an instrument that was already out there, and it was in, was had been originally developed by a faculty, uh, some faculty members at Kansas State University, and then um, licensed and then used by I don't know how many colleges around the country, a couple hundred probably. Um, and it was a company called the Idea Center. They have since been gobbled up by two or three different companies now, like, you know, Pac-Man. <laughs> but, um, but they're still around. Um, but the instrument that they developed was really well designed to capture to the best you, that you can to give you some sense of one, how much do the students think that they learned? And then two, to what degree did the faculty member set in motion the things that we already know from research are most effective in spurring learning, right? Mm-hmm. In, in making learning the most likely to happen. Um, one of the things that is just critical to remember here is that Learning is not the sole function of the professor, and it's not the sole function of the student. It's what happens at the intersection between the teacher and the learner. It's that spark that happens there. And those two have to reach across a big cavern to get to making that spark. And they don't necessarily reach 50% of the way each. Sometimes the student has to reach a lot farther than the faculty member does, and sometimes the faculty member just didn't very good at reaching farther than halfway. And the inverse is also true. There's some people that are incredibly good at teaching, for lack of a better term, we'll use the technical term, knuckleheads, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some people that are just really, really good at that. And there's other people that aren't. And that's not mean they're bad professors. It's just they're not good at but it's hard. It's really hard to teach knuckleheads just is so um sorry i had flashbacks there for a moment so yeah i know um so what this instrument was trying to get at was we're not going to ask questions about did you like your professor um we're going to ask questions about did the professor use teaching methods and sort of class culture methods that we know from research uh, spur student engagement and get students more interested in learning. Such as? Um, <sighs> did the Sorry. professor lay out for the students why were they doing exercise A or exercise B? What was the point of what you were having the students do? Mm-hmm. Um, did the professor give them a clear sense of how they would be evaluated? Did the professor engage them in interchange conversation or was it just a data dump in the form of a lecture 
Was, you know, did the professor um, seem to care about the students as people, right? Mm -hmm. Or could they give a rat's butt, right? Um, that wasn't actually the survey language, but you get my point. Um, yeah. And you, as I recall, some of the questions were, were kind of elicited to um, even get information that might be against interest. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, so rather than you're very much avoiding whether you like the professor or not, but even asking que uh, questions of a student who might dislike the professor, but might have been taught as well as the professor could to establish what the professor actually did in class. Mm -hmm. That's right. Not, not the student's emotional response. Right. So like one question that was in a prior survey, um, I think at the institution we were at was, um, you know, was I graded fairly? Mm -hmm. And that's a stupid question to ask, <laughs> sir. It's <laughs> really? a stupid question to ask. Um, the better question is to ask, to the, did the students understand the criteria upon which they would be graded? Mm -hmm. Right? Then that's that's the stuff that actually matters because as a professor, I, if I tell you what I'm going to grade you on and then you produce something for me and then I assess you on it, everything's above board, everything's great, we're good, right? Mm -hmm. If I don't tell you anything and just say, write me a paper, well, then you just set in motion all of this stuff. The student doesn't know what the heck they're going to be graded on and they don't know what they're supposed to produce. So they wing it, give them some, give you something, and then you wing it equally to get the grading done on time, right? Like it's it's not an ideal situation. So I remember you used you used to use this data for um, faculty retreat uh, at the beginning of every um, year. Uh, could, you, could you describe how you would use that data to sort of um, for us new kids, but also for uh, anyone who wanted to like sort of get a feel for what was happening? You would provide a sort of um, oh, sort of like a, you would provide feedback that we could actually get feedback from what the students had had said. Mm-hmm. So I, what I would try to do, first of all, is is just from the data that we would get, how do we know what very what what experiences seem to correlate with students saying they learned a lot mm -hmm. and learned a lot across the different kinds of learning outcomes that a course might have? You know, some courses are going to have a learning outcome that's very much about how do you work with other students to achieve a common goal. And then another class is going to be, how do you think critically, which is, you know, much more of a individual endeavor. And not all student experiences line up with each learning outcome equally. So we would really look at, well, what are the experiences that drive learning seem to correlate with learning on each of these different outcomes? And then what kinds of courses, what kinds of classroom settings um, might best, but might sort of best be um, positioned to do more of the things that seem to be working. And so we would very much focus on what's the positive stuff that if you do more of this, you should expect to get more learning. Mm -hmm. And the the fun part about that for me was we're we're helping people see what they can do to improve what they're already good at, as opposed to using course evaluations as a, um, you know, a, as a 
as something to beat people over the head with. Yeah, well, it was for for some of us who had been doing it before, and for some of us who hadn't never taught college before. It was a, it was for me. It was a real wake up call to certain practices which I hadn't realized were so fundamental. I remember vividly you saying that they almost casually that you thought one of the chief um, one of the chief commonalities amongst people who had an excellent academic experience uh, looking back at their four years as an undergraduate was that they had been in a professor's office in the first like three weeks of school. So I made sure that I saw all my students in the first two weeks and didn't really talk about grades or anything, just uh, learn their names better and learn something about them that I could hang a name on. Mm -hmm. It made a difference, I think. Yeah. Well, it's look, the, the, for learning to happen, not only does it have to, it happens in the space in between the teacher and the learner, but for learning to really jump, there's this delicate balance sometimes where the professor has to sort of support the student, give that student a sense of that they're, that they really believe in them in order so that they can really challenge that student when the student doesn't put forward their best work. And the whole point, this notion of like connecting with your students and all that stuff, it's not just for its own sake. It's so that then you have a relationship with them, a trust factor, a connection where then you can say to them with a little bit more certainty, clarity, uh, in a way that will be received the way you want it to be received to say, look, I think you can do better than this. I think you got it in you to really put together a better paper, a better argument than the one you've put forward here. Here's a couple of ways I think you can do that. Get something back to me in a week. And that student will actually respond to that by, wow, that professor thinks I got it in me. All right, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. That's that was you just gave away a page out of my playbook. Oh well, good. Yeah, no, that was that was exactly how. Yeah, that was exactly how that worked because of that that interaction in the first two weeks. I could say that to someone. Right. One of the really cool things about Jonathan's book, and again, plug that book. I haven't read it yet, and I'm still excited to read it. Is the degree to which the history of teaching does lots of there's very little talk about how human that connection needs to be in order for good teaching and good learning to happen mm-hmm. um that just doesn't get talked about and yeah. um that's not something that lots of professors got a lot of in grad school um so you're kind of stuck to try to figure it out on your own or if you're really lucky you've got a good faculty development center yeah. otherwise or you, or you replicate what meant something to you when you were an undergraduate, right? And which that's is where very, those which sur- is very dangerous. Yes, and that's where those those faculty surveys create even more problems because if yeah. the survey is built in the wrong way, that then privileges or perpetuates the wrong approach. Um, well, now you've just made it worse. Mm-hmm. Just made it worse. Well, we could keep on going, but you have a business to run and millions to millions to earn. Yeah. And That's hundreds right. of thousands to make happy. Yes. People to make happy. I mean, yeah. if we can help the public just see real prices and make better choices and have some more clarity in this process, then we've done everything tuition fit we're trying to do. So 
Well, my guest has been Mark Salisbury. He is the president, CEO, empresario, co-founder of Tuition Fit. Mark, thanks as always for being with us on Historically Thinking. It's really an honor to be with you again. I'll keep listening for sure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.